Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and codings industry. Today's guest is Nathan Pale, Vice President of Purchasing and Construction at the Lewis Group of Companies. Since 1955, the Lewis Group of Companies has developed new communities in California, Nevada, Arizona, Utah, totaling an excess of 25,000 acres and housing more than 88,000 families. Nate, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah. So before we get rolling, tell me, tell me a story. Tell me what's the luckiest thing that's ever happened to you? Okay. I got two things that I, I'm going to share with that. And one is, the first one is that when I was a kid, I got, like, I won a prize in like a, a box of cereal, like the kind where like, you've got a thing in the box, you know, there's the prizes you'd get. Yeah. But this one was actually like you won some other bigger prize and you had to mail it in. You didn't have to like collect box tops or anything like that. But you're actually like, hey, you're a winner. And you mailed it in. Oh, yeah. And I got a, a Chicago Cubs pendant. And then it was like one of those felt pendants. It was kind of cheap, but it was like, it was to me, I was like, holy smokes. I never, ever won anything before. And I've really never won anything like that since in like a random drawing like that which I thought was kind of cool. But on the flip side, I'm not necessarily a believer in luck per se, like that things just happen and lucky people are lucky and unlucky people are not. What I believe is, is that you're able to create your own bit of luck by being in the right places. So if you're looking for something that happened to you and you're sitting at home, so you want to go out and meet a bunch of people and get business and get sales. If you're just sitting at home, nobody's going to knock on your door to get you sales. But if you figure out where the people are you want to meet with are hanging out and you start going to those locations and start being in those situations, that's like how you create your luck. You're more likely to have positive outcomes when you put yourself in scenarios where those situations exist. So that to me is like, more important than luck is, is kind of put yourself out there and creating your own luck by being in more likely scenarios to have happen a successful outcome. Very good common sense advice. Now, how did you become a purchaser? Kind of fell into it. So when I was in college, I went to school for construction management at the University of Nebraska and I graduated college and didn't really know much about construction. I'd kind of been around residential home building as a part-time job growing up, but I got hired on for a company that took me out to California and we built water treatment plants. And I didn't have a single clue what a water treatment plant is or was or how it operated, let alone how to work and build on it, but got kind of thrown to the wolves and sink or swim. We had a saying like, you're given enough rope to hang yourself. So I had a lot of responsibilities there including ordering materials, managing labor, tracking quantities and production, stuff like that. But one of the tasks ended up being was negotiating subcontract agreements as one aspect of it. Well, this was back in 1999, 2000. So I did a few years there. And about 2004 is when the 
residential home building market was kind of going crazy. If everybody remembers the big, big bubble that happened, well, I got recruited to go work for a residential home builder to just do contract, subcontract negotiations and purchasing. So I went over, worked for a home builder for a bunch of years doing that and just kind of found my, my path along those courses over the last 15 years, just doing residential construction and being in purchasing. Very cool. Now, I think we've talked to briefly before and you kind of have your own take on a purchasing leader and what it means to be effective as a purchasing leader. Can you describe that? Yeah. So my belief is as purchasing, you're you're there to negotiate the best deals for your company. You're there to negotiate fair agreements with subcontractors. You're there to know the best products to be used that are right within the budget. And you want to be knowledgeable about trends and changes in laws and changes in code and changes in product manufacturing. Just you need to be aware of about everything. So my thought is, is you got to be out there in the trenches and learning and constantly meeting new people, new vendors, new trades, new experts, so that you really understand everything that's out there and what you're buying. A lot of times people in purchasing tend to sit behind a desk and they like to respond by emails and they don't like to meet a lot of people because they're happy with their current vendors or happy with their current trade base and they don't want to do the extra work that it takes to go out there and meet all these people. So I have a policy where, not only a policy, but a, an idea I try to go by is if somebody's professional and somebody's a real deal, then I'll take a meeting with them because I want to find out what their company is about, what they're doing, what opportunities there might be for me to use them, products I might not know about, or maybe there's nothing there and there's just somebody else that I know that, that could use their services. So I tend to meet with as many people as I can with the intent of like, hey, you never know. You never know what's going to happen. You're never going to know what to expect. And a lot of times these meetings, they turn out way more successful than I thought because I'm open-minded and the people come in and they share some stuff I didn't know about, or I find out that they're a part of a larger, bigger company that we do business with already and that there's opportunities for scaling or purchasing agreements and stuff like that. So I try to meet with as many people as possible because you never know which one's going to be successful and which one's going to pan out to a great opportunity. So when you limit to fewer meetings, your chances of having bigger, better things happen become smaller. Yeah, very cool. Now, you talked about meeting people the real deal. Now, you get approached by salespeople all the time. What advice would you give to salespeople when approaching a decision maker like yourself? So the way I like to do it is my LinkedIn inbox gets a lot of these, (laughs) hey, I'm so-and-so and and I've got a million products I can sell you and I've got the (laughs) best thing that you want to buy. A lot of people's inboxes are the same. And those ones I don't even respond to, they get deleted. But the people that kind of like, hey, they looked at your profile, they did a little research on you and they kind of figure out like, something about you and they send you an email and they say, Hey, Hey, so-and-so, um, I saw that you went to the university in Nebraska. Did you see the Husker game last weekend? Mm-hmm. They did really great and they won. And you're like, yeah, I did see it was pretty cool. And, and then, Oh, I see on your profile that you went to Nebraska too. And so like, all of a sudden there's this connection. So for me is when people reach out and they think of them itself as like, Hey, this is how would I act 
in person at a cocktail party, would I just go out mm. and just scream out the top of my lungs? Like <laughs> I'm here to do this, this and that, and you should do it because I'm awesome. No, what you're going to do is you're going to have a conversation with that person. You're going to find common interests and you're going to get to know them. And when you know somebody on a more personal level, then you start talking business, you find out about what it is you have to do. And there may not be an opportunity immediately, but when you have that friendship over time, opportunities arise, you might find that you can refer them to somebody else. You might need to use them or the person you're currently using might just kind of fall on their face and you're going to say, Hey, I know who I'm going to call because they've been here for a lot of time. So I suggest if you're in sales is you get out there and try to make friendships first, worry about the relationships, the business will come. It'll just take time to develop, but, but relationships last forever. So focus on that. Perfect. Now, negotiation is a big part of what you do. In your opinion, what are the keys to being a great negotiator? For me is knowing what your objective is. A lot of times we, we're looking at a few things. We want to have quality products. We will have a budget we need to adhere to. And in my world, we also have to worry about ongoing expenses that might be caused by buying an inferior product or something that takes more maintenance. So we're looking at initial costs, we're looking at long-term costs, we're looking at quality, and we need somebody that can be consistent in their schedules or deliveries and stuff like that. We don't want any hiccups. So when we know what our goals is as a purchaser, then it works to know what you're up against with the people that are competing for your business. And you try to use those relationships to know, hey, what, what are their objectives? What are they trying to accomplish? And what the people that they're been against, what do they want to accomplish? And when you know kind of where you want to end up, then I, I treat it as a bit of a game. And we play a little bit of back and forth. And we have fun with it. It's not a big beat <laughs> each other up and try to have one person comes out ahead and the other person feels like, they got a bad deal. We want everybody to come out as winners, but we try to figure out, hey, what's a win for them and what's a win for for our team? And hopefully together we can build a solid long-term partnership that goes a long ways in the future. Yeah, very nice. Now, I know on Instagram, you have a son. Yes. And do those negotiation skills help you at home? No, they do not. (laughs) My son uses the method of whining and complaining to break you down until he gets what he wants. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit different different set of negotiation skills he has and, and for me to, to master at home. <laughs> That's cool. What's the uh, toughest negotiation ever experienced? Jeez, uh, I, I think the hardest ones are when, when you've messed up on something mm. and you thought you had like a, a good deal bought out and you come to find out that like a large scope of work was missed. And you got to go back and you got to have the hard conversations with, with the contractor mm-hmm. or the hard conversations with your boss or your, your ownership of why things didn't turn out the, the way they did. Those are never fun conversations to have. So it's usually best to be, for me, to, to do a lot more due diligence up front. And sometimes even if like things don't seem right or they're too good to be true, like if you have a, a great prize from somebody and then the other bids are not as competitive or let's just call it what they are there. One's really low and the rest are at a different price point. Hey, that doesn't spell right. You're going to buy yourself a bigger problem later on. So I'll get to the point where I'll just say, hey, look, you know, I don't really want to, you guys are professionals, you guys know your numbers, but your number is significantly lower than somebody else's that it makes me uncomfortable. 
I'd like you to go back and really make sure you don't have any math errors or anything like that. Because if we sign a contract, these are the things I'm expecting to have happen. And there's no change orders later. And a lot of times that solves a lot of problems down the road when you're up front and more communicative with the people you're negotiating with and just going, hey, I got a great price and sign them up. And then you find out later that XYZ is not working out too great. And you're just got to go back and ask for more money from somebody else or try to tell somebody else that like, hey, we can't pay you for this work that we thought we were getting. So, Mm, Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, with your work, what sort of key trends are you paying really close attention to? Cost-wise, we're hearing a lot of stuff in the in the past year with, with tariffs, with uh, products that are being manufactured outside the United States. The pricing has gone up significantly. There's a lot of uncertainty on where prices are going to end up. Um, and when prices are rising, um, that can impact you know, projects starting or being able to meet budgets later on. So that's always a, a critical factor. The fun part of it is we spend a lot of time looking at consumer trends, what people mm. are looking. We build a lot of apartments. So what do people want in their apartments? What do people want for amenities? So those are exciting when you can kind of plan really fantastic gyms, really fantastic rec centers, then, and you're just over-delivering ex- up on expectations for the residents. And then when they move in, they're just wowed away by how great their, their place is to live. So spend a lot of time tracking trends and tracking costs and what's what's market's doing. Yeah. So you talked about delivering on sort of consumer trends. How do you how do you pay attention to that? Do you do you do your in-house research? Are there sort of certain publications you look to? How do you how do you sort of sort of pull that insight into your organization? We do a lot of walks. We go to a lot of existing projects, new projects have come on the market and see what everybody's doing. We meet with our consultants. For example, if we're doing a, a fitness, a nice fitness center in our community centers, we'll talk to our fitness consultants. Hey, what are you guys installing in the other customers you're working for? Like, what are other things are people doing? Or we'll go to like a nice 24-hour fitness or choose fitness, see what they're doing, saying, hey, how can we take this lifestyle from a gym over and put it into an apartment center gym? and take away like the person's need that they have to go get an outside gym membership. So we do a lot of that, stay close to publications, stay close to what our residents ask for and want. We do focus groups. We're just trying to always keep our ear to the ground and see what we see. Yeah. Now with these trends, like one of the trends that I'm always curious about is, is how important from some, in terms of a purchasing decision is sustainability for for your consumers, your customers? As in like environmental sustainability? Yeah, project sustainability or whatnot. I mean, to be honest with you, we try to keep up with what the the consumers are looking for and their expectations. Mm -hmm. But there's also price sensitivity Mm -hmm. with consumers. Do they want to pay more to live in, say you got an equal project across the street from each other and they're the same size apartment and they're the exact same amenities. And you say one is a LEED certified super green project and the other is just the minimum to meet the code requirements. But Mm -hmm. the more expensive, more environmentally friendly one costs significantly more. There's going to be a, a price point where people go, hey, the value to be above and beyond in sustainability is too much for me to afford. I'm not going to go there. I'm going to stick with what I know. So it's kind of 
we try to be very current. We try to keep up with what's required. We try to go a little bit above and beyond where it's important, especially if it saves us some long-term expenses. It does happen a lot of times too. Then we go with it, but it, it's still a, a market that's very price sensitive to what the consumer wants. Yeah. So, so when, from what you just told me, at what point did you experience the most growth in your life? For me personally, my, my last two, two and a half years, I've seen the biggest career growth. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I attribute this to, I went more aggressive in building my network of mm-hmm. connections and personal relationships before I kind of went to local industry events and knew the people in the industry, but I didn't really do anything on a national level. And I didn't get outside of my little box of within the residential home building industry. And the last two and a half years, I said, hey, I'm going to do a bit more. I started going to a lot more national trade shows. I started going to more other engagements, other networking events. And then I also started going to stuff that had nothing to do with my specific industry. I started doing like Toastmasters and I started Mm. doing some startup business advising and consulting and going to those type of networking groups. And then when you start going to, to more and more things, I started building a bigger network of connections and the more people you start meeting, the more people that they can introduce you to and that you meet more other people and you can introduce people to other. So for me, the last two and a half years when I started getting outside of my little world and expanding my network, that's for me when I really saw my my career take off and I attribute that to building my network. And the thing about it is though, it's like not one of those things that you can go out tomorrow and just go, I want a big network. Like <laughs> you take time to develop. You have to go to a lot of stuff. You don't see the fruits of your efforts for sometimes many years. And you're going, the first time you go to something, you're like, hey, what am I doing here? I didn't, I met one person. I got some business cards. I don't even know what I'm going to do with them and throw them in the box and never talk <laughs> to that person again. But then you start seeing them like, oh, I saw you at that other event. And I start seeing you. And then next thing you know, you're, you're starting being friends with them. And then all of a sudden you're starting to talk business deals. And all of a sudden, you find out that like, hey, I didn't know you guys did this. And now there's an opportunity to bring them in as a new vendor and save a bunch of money. And that might have taken two, three years to develop. And you just have to get out there and do it. It takes time to build it, but it's definitely worth it. Very nice. It sounds like you you found a little or found passion in sort of connecting people that you, you haven't had before. Yeah, I found where everybody kind of starts looking for their calling or looking for their happiness or where they yeah. really find it. Like for me, when I started really focusing on building my network, because before I was always like, I'd go networking things and I'd think about like, what do I need to do to beat somebody and to yeah. make a deal happen? When I stopped thinking about it that way and just started thinking about how can I meet somebody as a person and not try to meet 50 people, get 50 business cards, but like, hey, can I walk away with three good connections of people that I could go have coffee with in the next week or so, and then see where that takes me. That really started kind of making me feel like, hey, I, I like meeting people. I like hearing their stories. I like hearing what they're working on. And then instead of it being like, hey, a one-on-one transaction, like you have something I need, I have something you need, let's trade. That doesn't really get anybody growing too far. For me, it's better of like, hey, I see what you're doing. Let me connect you to three or four other people who I think could use your your value. And then mm-hmm. instead of it just being a one-on-one transaction, now they're getting a three-on-one and they're able to grow that. So I started finding like personal fulfillment when I was like helping other people grow their business or giving them advice on how to go out and get business. 
or making better relationships. Like to me, that that felt more fulfilling and sort of developed a passion for that. And the more I've gone after it, the bigger that passion has gone. And it's also been more rewarding because of it. So kind of a circle that keeps building on itself. Awesome. Sounds like a lot of fun. Now, with all this activity happening, you must be a fairly busy guy. What are the top three habits or routines that help you stay on track and successful? I, for me, is having discipline to do the things you need to do first that you want to always accomplish. So, so like for me, going to the gym is an important part of my day. And mm-hmm. if I try to do it at lunchtime or after work, there's too many opportunities for something to get in the way for it to go wrong or not happen or I'd yep. be too tired to go. So for me, I always go to the gym first thing in the morning. And then when I'm done with that, I know, hey, I got that out of the way. There's nothing else that can interrupt me from getting that done. Now the day can do and flow where it needs to flow. And if I have to go somewhere else or I have to be at a different meeting or things happen, I'm flexible to flow with the day. So for me, having the discipline to do the things that you have to get done daily, do those first. I'm a to-do list kind of person. I like Uh to write out the things I like to get done for the day. I like to cross them off and I tend to rewrite my to-do list every day so I don't like take the same one over. And, and by rewriting it out, it helps me, it helps the idea go from paper into my brain and stick in my brain when I write it out. So that's why I like to, to rewrite them every day. It helps me to remember. And a third one, huh? I'm going to have to think about that. I guess focusing on how you envision where you want to be in the future and what that looks mm. like for you. So you're putting yourself into situations to get there. So like if you want to become, or if you're like, for example, if you're starting out and you're an assistant purchasing agent in the industry and you said, Hey, in five years, I want to be a senior purchasing person in the industry. Like you can't just sit at your desk and do your tasks. You have to start learning the jobs ahead of you. You have to start getting out there and building your network of people and you have to start expanding your education. So you want to start always thinking about where you want to be in the future and gaining the information, the knowledge that's going to take you to get there. And those things, again, they don't happen overnight. They take time to develop. So that's why you got to kind of work on those things every day, no matter what, whether or not you're going to see the fruits of your labor immediately. You got to, you got to keep, keep hustling for those other, those other goals you want to achieve. Very nice. Now, you said you, you work out a lot, so you're a fairly healthy guy, but give me one really, besides going to the gym, give me one really healthy habit you have and one unhealthy habit. <laughs> <laughs> My healthy habit, the one that works for me is I, I log what I eat every oh. day, whether it's good or bad, more so not so much to be like, hey, look how perfect I eat. <laughs> but when I know what I'm eating yeah. and the calories and the, and the macros and stuff like that, I don't want to get the details of that. But when I know what's going on, I'm more likely to make a better choice later on in the day. Mm-hmm. So if I'm eating along and I say I only got like 500 calories left for dinner, yep. I'm going to not be thinking about going and getting a hamburger and French fries and three beers yeah. because I'm going to blow it up. But if I'm not tracking it, it's amazing how much that slippery slope can be where just a little bit adds up and all of a sudden you're eating three or 400 more calories every day than you were expecting or that you thought you did. So for me, that's what it is, is logging in. I think your attention, your folk, when you focus on something, you're, you're better to do a better job at it. And so just pay attention. That helps. Unhealthy wise, 
we go to a lot of trade shows and all these trade shows, they have open bars. So <laughs> I think that's, that's probably where you get yourself into trouble is having cocktails and alcohol on a regular basis. It, it adds up drink or two here or there, no big deal. But when you start going to a lot of events and there's always an open bar before you know it, you're, you're drinking three or 400, 500 calories a day, more than you had planned on. So, yeah, for sure. Now, is there anything interesting that you're reading or, or listening to right now? So, yes, I recently got a podcast journal from mm. the guy that runs Entrepreneur on Fire podcast. His name's John Lee Dumas. And it's a idea to launch a podcast in 50 days. Podcasting had been something I've been kicking around, thinking about doing for a little while now. And I saw this pop up my Instagram feed and I bought it and started looking through it. And I was like, Hey, you know, this gives you the step-by-step guide and Hey, why not? We'll start going through the the checklist and see where it takes us. And hopefully uh, be launching my own podcast in the next couple of weeks. Awesome. Very awesome. Now, is there anything I should have asked you, but didn't? Hmm. <laughs> that I don't know. You talked about startups. Yes. What's that about? So for me, I, I've had a passion for entrepreneurship and startups, and I've done some stuff in the past. And of course, none of it's been too successful. And as anybody that's been in startups and entrepreneurship knows that you're going to have a lot of failures and it's a lot of hard work and it takes time to build um, successful companies and, and not everyone makes it. But as I got further along in my career and family and obligations, I didn't really have the time commitment to go do my own thing and work with no salary or very reduced salary for a lot of years. But I thought, hey, you know, how can I become involved in the startups mm. without having to put in, be 100% in? And I thought, well, I have a lot of ideas and I have a lot of experience and I have a lot of what not to do's and I like helping people build their businesses. So I thought, hey, why don't I just kind of get plugged in doing advising roles because I can I can invest my time mm-hmm. and I can invest some knowledge and resources instead of just throwing money as being an, an investor and in, in the businesses I could I could be an advisor. And so I started hanging around with some incubators and some startup networking meetup groups and slowly but surely kind of met a few people that we connected well that were in the startup world and we shared ideas and helped them get their business off the ground and give them guidance, try to check in with them a few times a month. And it's been exciting so far. Very cool. Now, last question. What common, what's the most common advice you give to these startups? Like what's the thing you just kind of feel like you repeat over and over to different groups? For me, I tell them, First and foremost, no matter what, you're in sales. Doesn't matter what your idea is or where you, what your role is in the company. When you're in startup, you're in sales. And if you go, like everybody wants to work on their pitch and everybody wants to work on get investments and get investors signed up and all this stuff. But if you've ever been to a pitch competition or an investor show, the ones that always do, the companies that always stand out and do well, it's less about their idea and more about do they have some traction? Do they have a viable product that's already got customers and they're already generating revenue? So I tell people, spend less time 
worrying about your pitch deck and if you're <laughs> going to get investors to come up and, and take your idea and run with it. Because more likely or not, whatever idea you have today, it's going to change, it's going to evolve, it's going to be something different. Go out there, get customers. And if you have customers, then people are going to want to be a part of that. And you're going to have a lot better success attracting investors when you already have sales and revenues because it's a, it's a better bet. It's more sure thing that you, you're capable of bringing them a return on their investment. So I say go out there, get sales. And even if you don't have a product that's manufactured, you haven't figured it out yet, just get the sales, figuring out how you're going to build it, how you're going to deliver it, how you're going to implement it. That's all part of the process. You'll figure that out. But getting sales is, should be the first priority. Very cool, Nate. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today. also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone, anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.